2: being on all day
0: when no one appreciates the
3: please you make
0: what's the point of being on all day when no one can tolerate
3: Just assume everybody in the world is a fan of something or a bunch of things. I don't know what it would be like to be a person who was not a fan of anything. And I also wonder whether I would really want to know that person. What would we talk about? But it's not something we necessarily examine about ourselves, right? It's like the line in in High Fidelity. He says, you know, you are what you like. Uh, I think that is to a certain extent true. We're going to look at that today. We're going to look at what it means to be a fan. Where does that come from and what goes on inside us when we are a fan? And to get us started, nobody could be better than Lynn Zubernus, a licensed clinical psychologist and professor at Westchester University who has written seven books based on her research on the psychology of fandom welcome to this conversation
2: thank you nice to be here
3: yes and nice to have you here and let's use you as our lab experiment model Uh, you are a fan of a show called supernatural and in a way this kind of started you down the road of thinking about what the nature of this whole thing is kind of explain your own relationship to the show supernatural and what it was that made you wonder about the phenomenon of being a fan
2: Sure, because it is directly relevant to my research. I actually, I'm a relatively fanish person, but I had never really been involved in fandom before or really thought of myself as a fan. And then I started watching this little CW television show back in 2005, not because I was captivated by it, but because a friend of mine loved it. And so a bunch of us all watched it sort of in solidarity with her because she wanted to talk about it all the time. (laughs) So I actually watched it for a whole year. And then in the beginning of the second season, I remember this vividly, this moment. I was sitting there grading papers, old school, red pen in my hand. And I was watching Supernatural sort of in the background. And then I realized my pen had fallen out of my hand, my papers were slipping onto the floor. And I said to my daughter, Oh my God. This is the most amazing television show ever. My daughter was like, are you losing it, mom? You've been watching this for a year. But it was not until that moment, something about the juxtaposition of where I was in my life and the messages that I was getting from that television show just gelled and I became a passionate fan and sort of fell down that rabbit hole.
3: So, you know, one thing that as you're saying this, I'm thinking is we live in a world today where there are algorithms spying on us all the time and saying, oh, well, Lynn liked that. And she liked this other thing, too. And she also likes Supernatural. I bet she's going to like this thing. You know, and there's this kind of sense. I mean, content is thrust at us all the time these days, but by sort of machine models. And I'm wondering whether you think there's something so elusive about the chemical connection we make to something that makes us really light up? Well, we'll get into the neurochemicals themselves in just a second, but is there something so magical about this that it almost can't be quantified? Or do you think it is possible to to understand why people like a thing and whether they'll like another thing?
2: I think it's partly possible to predict and to understand, and algorithms probably capture some of that. You know, if you like a sci-fi show about brothers, you might like this other sci-fi show about brothers, but it just isn't that simple. I have not fallen for a show like I fell for Supernatural in this entire time. And certainly in on social media, there have been a lot of options tried to serve up to me, but it really is an intersection between the messages in the media itself, whether it's a show or a book, or it could be all kinds of things, and where the person is at that point in their life. So it kind of fills some sort of a need and we can talk a bit about what those needs might be, but it's that intersection of both those things.
3: Yeah, let's get into those needs in a second. But it seems to me also one thing that was there in your story is this was also something you fell in love with communally. So you had a friend, she loved it. Some of the other friends thought, well, we better be able to talk to her about supernatural. And so this winds up being something that you share with people that you like you like those people so i'm assuming that sort of puts a thumb on the scale a little bit towards liking the thing
2: absolutely and that is one of the primary needs that being a fan actually fulfills i think some of the early research especially that came out of my own field psychology was pathologizing about fans because they were mistakenly looking at fan at being a fan at being an individual thing really a lot of the benefit of being a fan comes from being a member of a fan community or a fandom. That need for belongingness is such a basic human need. And in our very separated society where you may not know your neighbor anymore and your family members may live far away, we're really lacking that sense of belongingness and community. And many people find that within a fandom. So not that the media isn't part of what draws you in, but often what keeps people very engaged in fandom is getting those belongingness needs met.
3: So I'm assuming that when I'm watching something that I really like, that I've just fallen in love with almost literally, that there's some kind of wash of neurochemicals going on, some dopamine, some oxytocin, maybe some endocannabinoids. Has this ever actually been studied with, you know, real actual equipment or is this something that we just intuitively would know about such a thing?
2: No, no, it has been studied. There's a number of things that happen. One of the things actually comes out of that belongingness that I was talking about. There's a, a theory called social surrogacy theory that has studied the brain chemicals and what happens to people and the psychological and emotional reactions that people get when they are spending time with other fans or even spending time sort of watching a familiar favorite show. For example, people start to show increased empathy when they are doing that, just like they would if they were sitting at the dining room table with their family. There's also been studies that are done on a lot of them have been done on sports fans, but it turns out fans are fans and it's, it's pretty much similar across the board that even when you are just a spectator watching your favorite team, either in person or on television or on your phone or whatever, that People who are watching who are highly identified with that team experience some of the same brain chemical reactions that the actual players do on the field. So when your team wins or your favorite television show is renewed or your, you know, Taylor Swift is your thing and she's got a number one album, people actually experience a lot of that same rush, that physiological reaction that the people who are actually having the success do.
3: Yeah, actually, I've been a Green Bay Packers fan for about 50 years. And I, I believe that just seeing the green and gold colors of the uniform, I actually get a little dose of something, you know? I mean, there's for sure. just, just that even little completely nonverbal, out-of-context stimulation is a lot. But I think also there in what you're saying, too, is another thing, which is, and I think increasingly now, we are a little bit more isolated. We were isolated during the pandemic. You know, Douglas Putnam, way before that, wrote Bowling Alone about how we don't have these communal activities anymore. And we're simultaneously kind of yoked up to our phones, to doom scrolling, to a process that never completely severs our connection to our existing reality. It makes us worry sometimes more about our existing reality or get into fights with people or worry about who's president. And I would assume that fandom is also. Also kind of a mental vacation from all of that.
2: Yes, it, when, it's, when it's working in a good way. And like anything else, fandom has a lot of benefits, both psychological and communal and emotional. It can also not be a good thing. I mean, similar to social media. Social media has a lot of downsides, but also for many people, it can be a source of social support. I was just reading an article the other day um, with some research about the differences in whether social media is possibly beneficial or harmful, depends on whether you're interacting in an active way or a passive way. So if you're just, as you say, doom scrolling through Twitter and just especially watching negative alarming thing after negative alarming thing, that is not gonna be good for your mental health. But if you are on social media, interacting within a community, celebrating something with fellow fans, that's gonna be good for your mental health. That's gonna be a source of social support for you. So like everything, there's never a simple answer. It can kind of go either way.
3: Yeah, and I think also with fandom, a lot of it depends on how we're handling it, what we're doing with it. You know, it's weird because if you're a sports fan, um, about half the time you're going to be miserable because your team is going to lose. <laughs> um, I mean, and so there, it just isn't always a positive experience. But that's also true with an awful lot of culture that we absorb. And so I remember, and I think I believe you will identify with this quite a bit. I will. I remember the night uh, when on Game of Thrones, the so-called Red Wedding took place. I don't mm-hmm. want to do too many spoilers, but this was this horrifying moment of carnage and heartbreak and and. Dashed hopes of a young couple and just a family being ripped apart with knives, literally. And Teen Game of Thrones was weird because you could watch it on HBO. But everybody watched it at 10 o'clock or whatever time it came on. And then like when it was over, the phone rang at our house, and it was our one of our friends, and actually my partner's brother, calling it because he needed to talk. I mean, he was devastated. We everyone was just gut punched by this thing. And maybe you can talk a little bit about a that quality when something really really horrible happens in your fan world and maybe be the importance of having other people to kind of process that with.
2: Yeah. I mean, people take their fandoms very, very seriously as that story that you just told makes really, really clear. I think that that also can be in the end, though, a positive experience for people within that community because the norms in fandom are that you reach out to other people And you reach out to them and share your real feelings. You don't reach out to them in the way you do with professional colleagues or maybe even with people in your family sometimes or friends where you have a persona and you're sort of trying to, you know, maybe not saying exactly what other people want to hear in the fan situation. You're saying what's real. That is very validating because you are expressing your actual real feelings. And then it's especially validating when what comes back at you is other people, in this case, other Game of Thrones fans saying, oh my God, I feel the same way. I feel like my heart has ripped out. I feel like those knives were actually going into me. So that actually turns out to be very validating. It's also, you know, we're talking about things that feel good and it's sometimes hard to wrap our head around. Why does it feel good to watch a bunch of people be slaughtered at the Red Wedding? But there's a lot of research about why people are attracted to things like horror films, which, you know, this would be an example. Certainly Supernatural was a very bloody show at times. But we are drawn to experience those things vicariously when we know logically that we're actually safe. And then coming out on the other side and processing it is actually kind of a mastery experience for people. So it actually builds some resilience for us to deal with the real life difficult things that happen to us. So it it kind of has a doubly nice benefit.
3: Right. I, I think it's sometimes, though, first of all, I think some of this stuff is almost maybe becoming a little bit too prevalent, the sort of infliction of tragedy on us. I'm so old that I remember in 1975 on MASH, Dr. Henry Blake was killed at the end of season three. And America was like, once again, just gut punched by this. And you know people were really shocked. They, the idea of a main character being killed off on a series it was McLean Stevenson wanted to get out of his contract we find out later but you know I mean just it just hadn't really happened that much and I feel like now I mean there was an episode of The Walking Dead where two of the characters were killed by a guy with a baseball bat like this horrible person named Negan and, and I thought this is a I feel like I'm being emotionally abused now by the creators of the show this is this goes beyond horror it's like they really want to hurt me so I don't know be my therapist about that tell me how I should process that
2: you have to titrate your own experience. There is a lot. I, I'm a big Jeffrey Dean Morgan fan, <laughs> but I don't, but I don't watch he was on Supernatural also. Yeah. but I don't watch The Walking Dead because I know that for me that is a line too far. I didn't watch Game of Thrones either. I just heard it blow by blow from my daughter and son- in law <laughs> um because I know myself. and as a as a psychologist, my empathy is sort of ratcheted up pretty high most of the time i can't watch that kind of stuff so there's a lot of content out there some people are totally fine with it and really crave that sort of immersion experience of something that is difficult and then coming out on the other side other people are going to be too wrecked by that and that what i would tell you if you were my client is you shouldn't be watching that that's not good for you if that's your reaction Know how to walk away from your phone or your screen or
3: whatever. That actually is exactly what I did. So there are other people who are going to go, are you kidding me? These are like made up people. You're getting all excited and worked up and either enthralled or in love or in shock or in horror over completely fictionalized entities. What's wrong with you? Come back to the real world. What's your response to people who say things like that?
2: Well, first of all, they do have a bit of a point because I I do see people within fandom when they're very passionate about some kind of media or even when they're passionate about the persona of a real person that they are very passionate about or a, a sports team hero, you know, a football player or something. It doesn't even have to be a fictional character. But sometimes that passion does people start to lose the awareness that these are fictional characters, you know. It's okay for a character like Negan to do a horrible thing like pummeling people to death with a baseball bat in fiction. It's that has nothing to do with whether or not it's okay in the real world. So, I do think it's useful that we remind ourselves that fiction exists for a different purpose and it and it is not the real world. But interestingly, the way the brain works and the reason we are so drawn to fictional characters is because we have the same responses to our favorite fictional characters that we're seeing on TV as we do to our real life friends and family when we spend a lot of time with them. Our brain is, you know, wired with mirror neurons. We recognize familiar faces and we feel that same sense of, ah, I'm with my people. I'm with my family. That's why we get so attached. That part of it is not bad. The other part, if you lose the thread between what's fictional and what's not fictional, can be difficult.
3: You know, as I was preparing for the show, another thing I started to think about, because we do, as you said at the beginning, kind of fall in love with shows or, you know, movies or whatever that we really love. We probably have some of the same oxytocin, you know, cuddle hormone hits and stuff like that. But there's also, I don't know. Have you experienced just like going back and looking at something five years later and going, what the hell was I so excited about? <laughs> there is yes. we, can, we can also fall out of love. Maybe talk about that.
2: Yes, absolutely. And people really differ. I've been in love with Supernatural since 2006. So clearly I don't fall out of love very easily. I tend to be pretty fandom monogamous um, about things. But other people are very different and tend to be sort of serial Monogamist, love this thing. And then a year later, nope, that doesn't meet my needs anymore. Now I love this new thing. It just depends, again, on that intersection. Sometimes the media that spoke to you and the characters that meant a lot to you when you were 33. Don't meet those same needs when you're 45 and you're looking for something else and you're looking for a different kind of community around that thing. So most people I'm a little bit unusual, I think, in that I have stayed in love with Supernatural for all this time. Most people. Have a little bit of uh, moving around. Although, you know, my brother in law has been an Eagles fan. I'm in Philly. He's been an Eagles fan since he was about five years old. And he's definitely not five years old anymore. Well,
3: that being an Eagles fan is a treatable psychiatric disorder. We we don't have time. We don't have time to have that conversation right now. Uh, (laughs) But, you know, I do want to talk a little bit here towards the end about. The more interactive world we live in these days. You know, I grew up and I would watch what, Mash or something, and then I, that's, that was the end of it. Really, uh, we live at a time where social media allows us to collectively process things. So sometimes, make it a two-way communication. We'll often hear terms like shipping, uh, which is fans wanting two characters to get together, and, and sometimes those prayers are heard. That sometimes is called fan service when you give the fans something that you know they wanted. They wanted to see Thor and Hulk have a fight. Find to see who was stronger, or there's fan fiction that you can share with other people online. You can have Dr. Huddy and Cuddy and Dr. House you know get pregnant and have a baby, and maybe it's Dr. House who has the baby and just all this. So what's the overall kind of and precipitate from that? How does that make us a different kind of fan than might have existed 30 or 40 years ago?
2: Yeah, the I have to give you a shout-out for actually mentioning M-Preg, which is a very yes. little-known genre of fan fiction, so kudos for you on doing your research. Yeah, this is the, um, that's
3: the idea that the man sometimes will get pregnant or, or Commander Picard will get pregnant by his number one or something like that. Yeah, go ahead.
2: Yes, exactly. But it has changed the way fans interact both with each other and the way they interact sometimes with the source material or the real people. The the research that came out of psychology many, many years ago, back in the 1950s, talked about the concept of parasocial relationships. And that was a pretty pathologizing term, which referred to the fact that it was mostly about celebrity worship, the idea that a fan worships and knows everything about this particular celebrity. And the celebrity, of course, doesn't have any idea that that fan even exists. So a parasocial relationship was viewed as inherently an unhealthy thing because of its completely one-way, lack of reciprocal nature. Things are much more reciprocal now. Fans can interact with celebrities, people on the other side of the divide, either on social media or at fan conventions. There, There is more reciprocity. Certainly, it's still not truly reciprocal because the celebrity doesn't really know the fan the way the fan feels like they know the celebrity. But that has made things not as one way as it used to be. I, I wrote a whole book with the cast of Supernatural because they wanted to speak directly to the fans and like let fans actually get to know them a little bit. So they wrote very personal essays. That would never have happened back in the day. There's less guardedness around kind of image, at least to a certain extent. But I think it's also changed the way fans interact with other fans. You mentioned all kinds of creative pursuits, which is one of the best things about fandom. Fans write fan fiction, they post it, they share it with other fans, they get the validation of other fans saying, oh my God, this is wonderful, or oh, this is what really pushes my buttons too, or oh, I wish this could happen in canon. So there's a lot of interaction between fans, too, that it wasn't so easy to happen back in, you know, in the 1970s when there was one Star Trek convention a year and people sent printed zines around through the mail to trade fan fiction and, you know, try to make pen pals. It has changed things a lot.
3: We have to stop there, uh, but we've been talking to Lynn Zubernus, a uh, licensed clinical psychologist and professor at Westchester University who's written seven books based on her research on the psychology of fandom. Worst parasocial relationship ever. Probably John Hinckley and Jodie Foster will go out with a song about that. I am nothing. You are wind and water and the sky. Jodie. I love that song so much, so much. Uh, All right, we're going to continue talking about fandom. Uh, Joining us now is Maya Phillips, uh, the author of Nerd Adventures in Fandom, From This Universe to the Multiverse, and a critic at large uh, at the New York Times. Maya Phillips, welcome to our conversation. Thanks. Uh, Thank you
0: for having me.
3: So, you know, reading your work, it seems to me that one way that fandom and maybe especially nerd fandom begins is with a sense of recognition, right? Either we see ourselves or we see an aspirational version of ourselves or we see a group we think we could fit into. You know, we could we think, "Ah, you know, I could I could see myself at Hogwarts. I probably would have been Ravenclaw, but not, you know, or maybe it's a representational thing. I know for you, it it was Black Panther, it was Luke Cage probably not Zack Taylor the Black Power Ranger could have been though but maybe talk a little bit about that idea of recognition
0: absolutely um i think especially for people of color for you know women for you know trans people just any kind of group where you're uh where you feel marginalized in a larger culture nerd culture and fandoms allow you a place where you can feel yourself and It's really it's it's really like placing yourself within the world of that fandom and you know I know earlier in the earlier segment you were talking about uh, fan culture and, and you know fan fiction and like interacting with that world and I think that really appeals to a lot of people who maybe feel like outcast or just don't feel represented elsewhere.
3: Yeah, and I I would extend that. Okay, so I'm way, way, way older than you are. Um, but, for example, when Spider-Man came out as a comic book, and there had been mostly DC comic books, have, which have this kind of somewhat Republican, uh, um, kind of emotionally closed-off quality to them, particularly back in those days, back in the 60s. Um, and suddenly, here's this guy who really was a nerd. I mean, Clark Kent is a lie. Superman is the truth. Peter Parker is the truth. Spider-Man is a little bit of the made-up identity. But Peter Parker was a real nerd, and he was neurotic. One of the first things that uh, Spider-Man does in one of the first comic books is he swings through the window of a psychiatrist and ties the psychiatrist up and asks him a lot of questions about why he would be doing such a thankless job. And as a neurotic kid, I felt very seen, as they say, at that moment. I mean, I really think it can be almost anybody probably feels like an outcast in certain ways.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I think I had that same connection as Spider-Man. It was, Spider-Man was one of my dad's favorites and, you know, just especially being a New Yorker and mm-hmm. <laughs> knowing that Spider-Man was a local kid and, yeah, being a total nerd. And, you know, he had all of these like asides. He like very much spoke what he was thinking in a like very comical way. And, you know, that appeals to me, especially as, you know, an A student and who was always reading. <laughs>
3: Right. So, you know, yeah, you you heard some of the stuff that we said in the first segment. But Harry Potter is interesting to talk about because Harry Potter starts in the 90s where there isn't quite the amount of interactive stuff available. But what there is is this phenomenon where kids line up outside bookstores at midnight uh, when the new book is coming out. And a lot of times they are in costume. And it seems to me that maybe some of the maybe hived off world – of nerd culture starts to mainstream in a certain way. You kind of have cosplay, Comic-Con stuff happening, but you know, Barnes & Noble full of kids who wouldn't necessarily have done that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember being a part of that. Well, not the actual waiting outside the bookstores because that was a bit much. <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah, I do think that at some point there was a shift to where you see cosplay more often. And it's really interesting, you know, from me being a critic who, who writes about, of course, pop culture and nerd culture, but also just fine arts that, you know, you see that in theater too, like like people cosplaying at Phantom or Six or, you know, there's. it seems like every medium now has an element that can, that lends itself to that kind of fandom, that kind of uh, performative fandom.
3: Yeah. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit also about the way in which, I mean, this is a sort of over-covered subject, but you have fresh and interesting insights into it. The way in which nerd culture went from a marginalized culture to a mainstream culture, you know, and uh, you know also way more about anime and Japanese film in general than I do, but there's the term they have called, oh, I think it's otaku, you know, otaku are, are people who fail to acquire social skills because they're too immersed uh, in in some kind of genre or subgenre. Years ago, probably before you were born, William Shatner went on Saturday Night Live and did this whole bit where he talked to a Star Trek convention, but he told them basically to get lives and go out and kiss a girl and <laughs> and they, they felt very assaulted and betrayed by this, too. I mean, here's their hero saying this stuff. But there's a, there's a way in which I think those stereotypes in the comic book man in the Simpsons are less real and relevant today.
0: Yeah, I mean, but you still do get them, and it's interesting that you mention anime and otaku because I think at some point there was a shift, just like with nerd, that like a lot of anime fans tried to reclaim the term otaku, and with anime, and especially like even though we have such a big like pro nerd culture now that it's so main mainstream anime is still kind of on the fringe a little bit like depending on how deep you are into it like there are the mainstream kind of um you know the mainstream stars but if you get really into anime like it's still something where there's that uh idea that you are a nerd and and there's also that gross kind of idea that there's like some kind of sexual deviancy there or you know because of hentai and all that and it all gets conflated, um, and you know, for someone who grew up like loving anime, like that's that's really tough to see when, when there's there hasn't been as dramatic as a shift as has uh, as we've had with like you know space odysseys and with the MCU and comic book stories.
3: Yeah, well, I mean, one, suggest- one suggestion the, of that, I mean, once again, I don't know that much about it, but, you know, uh, Miyazaki, who's sort of the Scorsese of Japan or, or of uh, Japan animation or whatever we want to call him, in 2014, we'd play the clip, but I'm sure it's in Japanese, in a TV interview, he said, if you don't spend time watching real people, you can't do this because you've never seen it. Some people spend their lives interested only in themselves. Almost all, all Japanese animation is produced with hardly any basis taken from observing real people. It's produced by humans who can't stand looking at other humans. That's why the industry is full of ot- of otaku. Um and you know, that's sort of like Shatner turning on his fans. I mean that that's gotta be tough to hear from him.
0: It oh yeah, that is. I hadn't heard that. That is really disappointing. But I can also I I understand that because Miyazaki is working on a very uh elevated level and like it's it's really great that Studio Ghibli has been such a force and has really made that corner of anime really mainstream and has been honestly a pioneer in terms of animation but yeah there is that is I I would say that's too broad of a statement to make uh, to just blanket statement for anime and anime fans because there is i feel like people still think of anime as one thing and they're typically gonna think of like shonen like naruto or something or dragon ball z which is fine but there is so much complexity to the genre and there's something there for everyone and there are depictions of real life or realistic you know like slice of life shows like i love those too
3: so, and, and I think we're also touching on another thing, which is a fandom and probably especially, again, nerd fandom. It is, as we said at the top, kind of people finding a home, right? Finding a place where whatever's weird about them seems okay. And and when that's violated in some way, that's got to be really difficult. And I, we can go back to Harry Potter. I think a lot of people who have maybe felt odd or different or whatever in some kinds of mainstream situations looked at the world of Hogwarts and said, well, everybody there is kind of different, right? So and I'd fit right in. Nobody would think anything about the fact that I'm whatever it is I am. And then Rowling kind of, you know, winds up sharing some of her personal views. And, and I think a lot of people I know, and you know better than I do, a lot of people felt very betrayed by that, right?
0: Yeah. I, and I'm definitely part of that group and me and a lot of my friends, because, you know, we grew up just at that that, that, you know, ideal age where I remember at some point I was the same age as Harry Potter as the books were coming Mm -hmm. out. And that was really great. Also, my birthday is very close to Harry Potter's. Um, So like that, I had that really intense fan connection. And, you know, it's, it's really disappointing to see that because then you have to have that debate, which people have in any kind of art form. Because it happens all the time where you have to, you know, think about the connection between the artist and the art and whether and what that means for you personally. And whether that means that you don't actually consume that art anymore or you don't like support it financially or whatever it is. And for me, it was a conflation of Rowling's views, which I found abominable. And just the fact that I was steadily growing out of the fandom anyway. Um, and you know, that's also a thing that is really tough to deal with as a fan, because again, you have these connections to these things, you have this nostalgia, but the reality is, you know, you grow and change and the fandoms grow and change as well.
3: Yeah. And some of the fun of nerd fandom, I think can be anyway, finding something that's considerably less widely embraced than, say, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or Harry Potter books. Something that's a little bit more niche uh, that you love and a small group of people really love. Now, the risk of that, I would think, is that if it's a really small group of people, <laughs> it might get canceled. Not canceled for cancel culture, but canceled because the ratings are no good. I happen to be or happen to have been a massive fan of the one season miracle known as Firefly. And I know you have some experience at some of these conventions running into people ah, more or less like me.
0: Oh my gosh. As you were talking, I was like, I was like, Oh, I'm going to mention Firefly as soon as he's done. (laughs) Yeah. It's, that's a great example of it. And it is, I mean, the good thing is that Firefly, I've seen a lot of Firefly reunion panels uh, (laughs) at comic conventions and, you know, that fandom has still been alive and kicking for years. Like I always see like um, a cosplay from Firefly, even now, even all these years later. And, you know, it is is difficult that it, it is precious that, you know, part of being a nerd is like you say, enjoying this thing and like feeling that you have something special that you know about you and only a couple people know about and having to see that either fandom end or see it blow up and see have to deal with how it changes if you know you have an adaptation if you have a sequel and see other people get involved in this thing and again seeing it change and needing to reconcile yourself with that.
3: So I'm going to ask you one more question. We don't have a lot of time, and I'm going to ask you a question that really you're going to want to answer in 30 minutes, but let's see how it goes anyway. So you, know, you talked about you were like at a certain point kind of growing out of Harry Potter fandom anyway. Um And I think about that. I mean, one of the critiques that comes up sometime, it came up on this show on last Friday, uh, is that we are increasingly as a culture in our pajamas. That if you look at the top 10 grossing movies of 1980, some of them are Coal Miner's Daughter, Ordinary People, 9 to 5, Kramer versus Kramer. And then if you look at 2019, which is the last year before the pandemic, Everything is a multi-installment franchise or a kid's movie or a superhero movie or all three of the – I mean the weirdly Joker (laughs) on that list is the closest thing to something that seems to involve some kind of thing close to somewhere adult culture, although a pretty twisted uh, version of – uh, of adult culture, and you do get the Scorsese critique, right? The, we are arresting ourselves in our pajamas. I'm I'm guessing you have a very stern rejoinder, an eloquent rejoinder to that.
0: <laughs> You're asking a lot for me, yeah. um, but no, I do. <sighs> Yes, I I do agree with part of that statement that I think the unfortunate part of these franchises getting so large is that we do miss out on the creativity. We do miss out on, you know, new fandoms that can be created from scratch. But I will say, you know, in response to that Scorsese quote too, is that these films do have they are significant and they are driving the culture and that's why we need to look at them and take take them seriously.
3: Yeah. I mean, Thanos is a really complicated character. He is not a stock villain. Thanos is in the Avengers, for people who don't know, uh, and and lots (laughs) of other crossover MCU stuff. But I mean, that's an example of complexity. It's not an example of cartoonishness. Well, anyway, I could talk about this for a really long time too, but you have been wonderful to talk to right now. We have to go to our next segment. Maya Phillips is the author of Nerd Adventures in in Fandom from the Universe to the Multiverse and a Critic at Large for the New York Times. Let's take that break. We'll come back with one more segment.
2: You can follow The Colin McEnroe Show on Facebook or Twitter at Colin McShow. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to or following our podcast on any podcast app. It's free. You don't have to wait an hour after eating before you go swimming. That's just something our mothers believed. Back to the show.
3: Okay, let's give her top billing. This uh, show was produced by our intern, Melody Rivera. She's done a terrific job on this. Uh, I'm feeling increasingly confident that when she takes over, all things considered, next year, uh, that franchise will also be in very good hands. But thank you, Melody, and thanks to Kat Pastor, our technical producer. Lily Tyson is our senior producer and mother hen to all interns. I guess calling you a hen is maybe not. No, she's, she's making a face. She's making a bad face. Uh, all right. But, but anyway, we have to proceed here uh, with uh, Jessica Houch, a lecturer in the uh, program of Writing and Rhetoric at Stony Brook University. Um, so first of all, Jessica Houch, welcome to our show.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
3: So you don't have to be a bird to be an ornithologist, but I feel like it's kind of hard to do the kind of scholarship that you're talking about doing that you are doing without having you know, more than a few toes in the water of this whole world. Maybe you can talk about your own relationship to this and how that kind of uh, precipitates your, your scholarship.
1: Uh, Absolutely. And if you notice the the trend amongst the guests that you've interviewed today is that we're all talking about this, both in terms of our uh, experience as academics, but also our experience as fans. And there's a long history of that within fandom studies. Um, Going back to Henry Jenkins and his book, uh, Textual Poachers, where he um, coins the term acufan, which is this idea of bringing together um, your fanish inclinations and your um, academic work to uh, create a kind of auto ethnographic account of what you're observing within these communities um so I'm I'm no different I know that you had mentioned Game of Thrones earlier and um, I am a big fan of Game of Thrones so unsurprisingly that is where a lot of my uh, analysis uh, comes from is both that, is, is that my experience within that fandom. Um, and for a fandom like Game of Thrones, but really any fandom, um, that having that insider knowledge is really beneficial to academics. Um, as you know, Game of Thrones is a incredibly complex show with lots of different storylines uh, and nearly impossible number of characters to keep track of. Um, but fans who are kind of always interested in Uh, accumulating an encyclopedic knowledge of the source text, um, a lot of times their creative works, like the fan fiction that you had mentioned earlier, fan vids, um, gift sets, are written with the assumption that their audience is going to have uh, at least some background knowledge, if not as as exhaustive background knowledge. Um, So in order to kind of truly get what fans are doing, uh, we really need to, to be a member of that community.
3: So you're not just a fan of game of thrones you're a shipper to a certain uh, point of view. yes
1: yes i fully admit to being a, a johnson which is um john snow and uh sansa stark shipper for sure yeah
3: now for people who don't know the series uh they're cousins uh and so and that's kind of an interesting thing too because is there a kind of a permission structure once you're out of the real world and into fandom and maybe into a fandom that's a little bit severed from daily 2023 reality that you could I mean, I don't know, probably if your friend said, I'm thinking of, you know, getting it on with my cousin, you might suggest that they rethink that or hit the pause button think it over or something. But is there sort of a permission structure to fandom that allows you to go there?
1: I I think so. I mean, so first of all, within the diegesis of Game of Thrones, (laughs) it's perfectly acceptable to marry cousins. Um, So we do have that kind of world permission, but we see that even outside of that. Um, Lynn talked quite a bit about supernatural, and one of the most popular ships in, in there is um, Wincest, right? This kind of uh, incestuous relationship between um, Sam and Dean. And a lot of what we see in fan fiction, um, particularly is uh, the space where uh, you know, primarily female authors are exploring kinks or sexual interests or fantasies that might otherwise be deemed taboo. Um, But which fandom gives us a a space um, to to kind of explore and and enjoy those kinds of of fantasies.
3: So, um, you know, we've been talking an awful lot on this show so far today about the world of the worlds of television, the worlds of movies, the worlds of kind of nerd culture, uh, anime, sci fi. But there's all kinds of other fans, and I know that you're also very interested in uh, early 2000 emo bands, like Dashboard, Dashboard Confessional or My Chemical Romance. Can we talk about either how that's similar or different? And I want to sort of also just say, once again, I want to mention how incredibly old I am. So, you know, I was a big fan in high school of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. But like you just got the record and you listened to it, there wasn't. You read the article in Rolling Stone when it came out. I mean, there wasn't some group I could join, and God knows there was no two-way communication between the fan and the band. How is it different now?
1: Um, So I mean, certainly there is an idea of that we can interact with um, with people. I know Lynn was talking about parasocial relationships and how you know celebrities that formerly would have been um, off limits are no longer off limits to us. In fact um because I am a member of the dashboard confessional fan club, <laughs> uh, which I'm glad I'm outing myself as that uh, <laughs> in public radio um I went to a live stream event um, that was hosted by the uh the by Chris Caraba, who is the the vocalist and lead guitarist and the kind of lead of the band right where fans were able to get on a video chat with him, interact with him um which is something that, was would have been impossible right prior to technological advances that have allowed us to engage in these um parasocial relationships more actively um we also you know so fandom right which is kind of the fan uh, the band version of fandom is is similar in a lot of ways and it's different um in in a number of ways too i think the the largest similarity that i see and this is something that um theorists like christina Busa have talked about in her work uh, primarily like uh, boy bands um is looking at the the role of what's called rpf or rps which is real person thick or real person slash um and this has been a fairly controversial topic within fandom uh which is is it ethical right to write fan fiction particularly like sexually explicit fan fiction about real people um and because that, that, that is now we're getting away from And you know, we can make fictional characters do whatever we want but now we're talking about you know um we're talking about real people we're talking about gerard way and what we're imagining him as a as a person doing right um but a lot of the research or not, at least some of the research is indicating that what we're doing is not actually writing about gerard way or chris braba or um Adam Lazar, right, we're talking about um, a kind of fictionalized version of that character that's based on the celebrity persona. Um, so, you know, thinking about the different ways that fans create these Spanish spaces, no one is going to archive of our own reading a, um, you know, a priority, which is um, Gerard and, and Frank from My Chemical Romance, thick, and thinking <laughs> this is, uh, this is a, a, a True story accounting of the time when Gerard was a, uh, a priest and Frank got a stigmata tattoo, right? Which is the plot of one of the most infamous slash famous um, Ferrari fix, the unholy verse. No one, no one is thinking that this is actually representing these real people, right? Although fans do ship those those two musicians based on some of their on screen per- um on like, uh, on screen their uh, co- performances in concerts and, and interviews as well.
3: Right, and actually, Kit Harrington and Sophie Turner could have a relationship with fewer complications, I think, than the characters that they played. Uh, to come back <laughs> to that idea, um, or I don't know what their personal lives are like right now. So,
1: there isn't actually a lot within that particular fandom. There isn't a lot of R- um, RPS, real person shipping. Um, it's really designated to to um, wanting to see Sansa and John, which doesn't mean that we don't want to see um, Kit and uh, Sophie be in another movie together, maybe where they have a romantic scene where we can project our desire for those (laughs) two characters onto them in their new roles, uh, but not necessarily in their personal lives.
3: Well, I have so many other questions, but we've run out of time, so I will have to do fan fiction about my other questions. Uh, (laughs) But, Jessica Houch, thank you so much. Lecturer in the Program of Writing and Rhetoric at Stony Brook University. Her book is Mind, Body, and Emotion in the Reception and Creation Practices of Fan Communities. Thanks to all of you for listening today. Thanks especially to our wonderful intern, Melody Rivera. I think this is an unalloyed triumph for her. All right. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more.